Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Mel Gibson places the phrase on the lips of Jesus as he walked the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering, carrying his cross to the place of his execution. But the scriptures place the phrase at the very end and the second to the last verse of the whole Bible. I know it was a little bit difficult to read the captions because they were so small. We tried to remedy that and just couldn't in the time that we had available. But Jesus says to his mother, Behold, mother, I am making all things new. It was a bit of artistic genius, I think, to put it where Mel Gibson put it. Because in this clip in the film, we see our Lord portrayed at His weakest hour, humanly speaking. He is unable to walk, unable even to draw breath without excruciating pain. The crown of thorns on His head and the blood running down His face in His eyes, mixing with the saliva and spilling from His mouth. He is being beaten. He is being hated. He is being screamed at. He is being mocked. He's falling to the ground under the weight of the rough lumber on which he is going to be executed in a few short minutes and crashing under its weight as it rubbed and pressed into the raw bloody flesh from his poor, wounded, scourged back. His poor body is being broken being crushed under the weight of his afflictions. And he says to his mother, as the sword prophesied by Simeon 33 years earlier pierces Mary's heart, see, mother, I am making all things new. You can barely get it said 
the pain is so great. That movie is a masterpiece. I have watched it every year at Easter time for 18 years, and I still can't get through it without weeping. And in this moment in the movie, two ideas are joined together forever, at least in my own mind. In the mysterious purposes and economy of God, it is the very crushing of His body that brings about the restoration of all things. That this man's weakness and agony somehow restores the world. Do you remember how they hated this movie when it came out at Easter time in 2004, 18 years ago? Now, do you remember the news reports and the discussion in the media? How mystified they were at the close examination of the sufferings of Christ? Why would anyone want to make a movie about a man being tortured to death? They said, we don't understand. You people are sick in the head. This is a religious snuff film, they said. An unbeliever cannot understand. How could he? All an unbeliever can see is a man being tortured to death in an exceptionally cruel manner. If an unbeliever esteems Christ at all, usually he values Christ's ethical teachings, that is, his life. To the unbeliever, the only lesson to be learned from Christ's death is that when you criticize the hypocrisies of people in power, they will do whatever they can to hurt you and destroy you, which is true enough. But if you are one whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, then you know the meaning of Christ's sufferings. You know the meaning of Christ's death. You know that God foretold through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ was born about those sufferings. Listen to the Word of God and think about this. 700 years before Christ is born. You might remember perhaps me talking about witnessing to my Jewish acquaintance and witnessing only out of the Old Testament. And this was one of the places where I went with him. Listen to the Word of God here and just marvel at our God. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And, from whom has the arm of the, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Can you believe that level of detail? Do you hear those phrases in there? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Behold, says the crushed one, I make all things new. What does Jesus make new by his suffering and his death? and his glorious resurrection? Well, God told us in his word that he has a multi-stage plan, and it is a wonderful plan, and I am convinced that most Christians only understand just a little bit of it. So hopefully this morning I will expand your vision a bit. You see, we're just in stage one of his glorious plan right now, and this phase of God's plan is focused on rescuing and transforming and joining together what the Apostle Peter calls in the King James Version, a peculiar people. The more modern translations translate it as a special people or a people for his own possession. The idea is that God has purchased or redeemed a group of people to become his special treasured possession. Formerly, the Jewish people were the only group from which God drew his special treasured people, but now in Christ, people like you and I can become part of that group. Now, what this means is in some ways hard for us to understand because the things of this world cover our spiritual eyes like a film of gauze, and we only see very imperfectly. But if you are truly in Christ this morning, this means that you are on a journey that Jesus Christ himself says that few people are on. It's a narrow gate that you have entered. And the journey will not be at all easy in many ways, for the road is also attended by many trials and many difficulties. That's what Jesus himself says to us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So you who are in Christ are a very rare and valuable bunch of creatures. And all around us, according to Jesus, there are many others who are apparent disciples, but not true disciples. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 that on that great day when he returns to inaugurate phase two of the plan, that many will come to him trying to claim some sort of a connection to him. And he says he will tell them basically to get lost. He doesn't know them and he never knew them. 
But if you know Christ this morning and are known by Christ this morning, you are a rare and a valuable creature, purchased by the blood and the agony and the crushing of the Son of God. You are God's treasure. You are His cherished possession. He sends angels to serve you and to guard you. He Himself watches over your waking and your sleeping. He guides you by His right hand, and afterwards, He takes you into glory. That's Psalm 139 and Psalm 73. One day when you stand with Jesus in heaven and look back over your life with Him, He will show you all of the exquisite care that He has lavished on you, and you will find that at those moments when you felt most alone, most bereft of His presence, most abandoned, that those moments were moments when He was right there with particular care and concern. You just couldn't perceive it. You couldn't feel it. If you were paying attention on Friday night, you might recall a scripture from Hebrews chapter 10 in the NIV. I have a slide of it. By one sacrifice... He, that is Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In other words, in His death on the cross, Christ died as your substitute. He died the death that you deserve, and He endured on that cross the hell that you deserve. And when you believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, God enacts a divinely appointed overdraft protection program. And he looks across time and he takes the ugly sins and all the penalty attached to those ugly sins and he deposits them, he credits them to Christ's bank account at the first bank of the wrath of God. And then he takes Christ's perfect obedience and the merits accumulated by Christ because of his perfect life and sacrificial death and he credits them to your account at a, at a bank account open for you at the first eternal bank of heavenly bliss. And on that cross, Jesus suffered your hell so that God can look upon you and see you as he sees Christ. Perfect. Forever. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. That's what Hebrews 10.14 says. None of your sins will ever be counted against you. And then He fills you with His Spirit. And He says, okay now, let's get to work on the second half of that verse. Let's get to work changing you to be like Christ. That's the being made holy part of Hebrews 10, 14. Or if you like precise theological language, one is justification and the other is sanctification. And so He starts with our inward and our invisible parts. He's he starts with the stuff that we've been talking about during Lent. The mind, the heart, the soul, the will, the spirit. And He changes those and He redeems them and He makes those parts of us new because these are the parts of us that survive the death of the body. And they go on for a little while to be in heaven with Christ. Now, the redemption of those invisible parts of His people is absolutely critical for the next stage in God's plan. 
God places tremendous importance, for instance, on your mind being renewed and on a right heart being put within you and on your soul being at rest in him precisely because the renewal of those parts is absolutely critical to the next phase of his plan. The next phase of his plan couldn't happen unless the invisible parts of you were fixed and redeemed first. And it is at precisely this point at which American evangelical Christianity has sort of now wandered off into the weeds. When you were presented with the gospel, you were probably told that the whole point was so that you could go to heaven when you die. And so you believed savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, and God forgives your sins, and he promises to take you to heaven when you die. And that is absolutely true. I'm not trying to cast any doubt on that whatsoever. And so if you were to ask your average born-again Christian, what is the hope? of the gospel. What, what hope, for what hope were you saved? Almost everyone would answer, my hope is in Jesus that I may go to heaven when I die. But that's not actually what the Bible says. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verses 23 and 24. I believe there's a slide for those as well. It was part of the call to worship this morning. I actually had Wally Add it. It wasn't on the slides, and that's okay, but it's, it's on a separate slide. It should be here. Romans 8, verses 23 and 24. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The redemption of of our bodies. For this hope, we were saved. According to Paul, the Christian hope is not heaven when you die. And the Bible actually spends very little time talking about where the invisible parts of you will go when you die, other than to assure you that it will be wonderful and you will be very happy there. But heaven is just a pit stop. The ultimate destination is for God to raise your perishable body up out of your grave and to transform it and then to stick all of your invisible parts back into it, which have been hanging around happily in heaven in the meantime. And he puts those parts back into your redeemed and your glorified body. And Paul talks about this in great detail. We need to pay careful attention to the things that the Scripture actually says and not just sort of parrot things that we've learned that may or may not be complete. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and starting in verse 42, Paul gives this wonderful news to us. And he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. 
and as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's an excellent verse for a, a nursery and a church, right? For the, for the babies. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But anyway. <laughs> for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, we, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So your new spirit will go back into your new body. There will be no sin, therefore no death. The resurrection body that you receive will be just like the body that Jesus got out of the grave with. The risen Jesus was not a ghost. He took great pains to prove that. He invited Thomas to stick his fingers in the holes in his hands and in his side if that was what Thomas needed to do in order to believe. The risen Jesus ate a piece of fish when his disciples refused to believe that he wasn't a ghost. And his body was obviously recognizable as the same Jesus they had known all along, yet it had some remarkable qualities. It could appear and disappear in locked rooms, for instance. It could cover great distances instantly. You'll be able to do that in your new body, courtesy of Jesus. Your eyes will always be clear and bright. Your hair will not gray, nor will it fall out. There will be no obesity, no arthritis, no hearing aids, no cancer, no schizophrenia, no depression, no weakness, no dental pain. Think of all the people that are going to be put out of business by the resurrection body. No more health insurance companies. Praise God. And dentists. I've got some good friends that are dentists, but man, you've got to be just a little bit mean to be a dentist, I think. <laughs> You'll wake up in the morning, and your breath will smell good. You'll get out of bed, and you won't be stiff and creaky. And your heart will never attack you again. And you'll be able to do things that you only see now in superhero movies. You'll be able to see that, say to that tree, behold, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. Behold, says Jesus, in the crushing of my body and the agony of my spirit, I make all things new. A new heart and a new mind and a new soul put back to a new body. But that's not all, is it? Not by a long shot. Why does Paul say in Romans chapter 8 that the whole created order is waiting with eager longing for us to be given these new bodies? Why, Why are the squirrels and the trees and the birds and the deer so concerned about us 
Well, when God set things up, he set up mankind as the link between himself and the created order, and in particular, the plants and the animals, but really the whole thing. And when God set up Adam in the garden, his main task was to care for it and to bring a rational harmony and order to it and to begin extending it. We, we, we tend to think that the whole earth was garden, but it wasn't. It was just a, a very small patch of earth that God planted in a certain place, and he put Adam there. And his job, and the job of his offspring was to extend the garden out and out and out as they grew in numbers and wisdom and power. And all through the whole thing, you see Adam having, for instance, a special relationship with the animals. Have you ever thought about that little episode in Genesis 2 where God brings the animals to Adam and he gives Adam the job of naming the animals? Now, in to us, that doesn't sound like that big a deal, you know, bear, okay, it's a bear. No, but see, in the Hebrew mind, something or someone's name was a statement about its deepest character and destiny. And in bringing the animals to Adam, God is delegating to humanity some of his authority and his power. And he's saying, okay, Adam, look deeply at this animal. Meditate on what you see. What sort of character does it have, Adam? What sort of personality? What does it need to flourish, Adam? What sort of habitat should you plant as you expand the garden with your children so that this kind of beast can survive and thrive and reproduce and multiply? And Adam had the supernatural ability and the deep desire to understand each animal and to care for it appropriately. Now, in the garden before the fall, nothing ate any other creature. Nothing ate, nothing, nothing ate itself, or, or other creatures, rather. It's not clear that animals died, but even if they did, it would have been a gentle affair without bloodshed and pain and violence and terror, and I, but I tend to think that nothing died at all. And we still instinctively long for this state of affairs. I have some pictures to illustrate this. The first one is of a diver who has just freed a whale who was entangled in a net. And this picture was taken after the whale was freed. And you see this connection between the whale and the diver. Why would somebody jump into the water to free a beast that could kill him with the slap of its tail? And why would the whale let him and then interact with him afterwards like this? Genesis 2 tells us. I have some other pictures too. Off the coast of Western Australia is an island where there's these small marsupials called quokkas. And quokkas have very few natural enemies and seem to have a great curiosity about humans. So people will come from all over the world to visit this little island where these creatures love to pose for selfies with human beings. Isn't that just the most adorable thing you've ever seen? We've got, we got four or five of them there. Go ahead and click on another one. I just love those things. These, these things are residue 
They're a latent memory of a time when our presence in the world was wholly good and wholly beneficial, and we loved the creation, and the creation loved us back. And our desire to care for the environment, for instance, is a remnant of Eden. Now, the fall affected us, and we know that, but what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8 is that it affected the whole created order. It introduced what Paul calls futility or emptiness. It's lost its order and purpose. Have you ever noticed that, that uh, there are certain philosophies that, as the, the theory of evolution came out that was necessarily atheistic, all the philosophies that, that looked at the world under that, under that rubric said, life is meaningless. Life is just this brief struggle to get to maturity, reproduce, and then die. And there's no other purpose to it. And, and human beings are not different. They're just part of that cycle, just like a hamster or a tuna fish. You just grow up and you reproduce and then you die. And there's no purpose. So, so Ernest Hemingway, for instance, writing from this perspective said, life is a dirty trick. It's a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. John Paul Sartre, writing in the 50s, the middle 50s, uh, put into the, the, the mouth of one of his characters, a man named Raquantin, the book was called Nausea. He said, everything that exists is born by chance, prolong, or sorry, is born without purpose, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. And the character then, once he realizes this, is overcome with the nausea of a meaningless existence. Well, wh why do people reach that conclusion? Well, because the created order was subjected to futility, to emptiness. It's lost its order and purpose. And then dumb atheistic man looks at that and says, it's empty and without purpose. That must be me too. Fools. It introduced what Paul calls also decay. The bondage of decay. Everything is held in the bondage, the grip of the bondage of decay or corruption. It's full of rot. It's full of stench. It's full of death. Because of us. Because of us, creatures live in terror of other creatures. Because some are now predators and others are prey. And we have these amazing things that zoologists have discovered. For instance, male ducks will gang rape female ducks. Groups of chimpanzees are horribly brutal, practicing warfare, killing for sport, infanticide, and cannibalism. And somehow, at some level, in a way that we don't understand, the creation, says Paul, knows it's broken, knows that it's spoiled. It knows that death and predation and futility and decay are alien intruders, and it longs to be set right. And it knows that when we are put right, it will be put right too. Until then, our relationship with ponies, for instance, is going to be a little bit schizophrenic. And so will our relationship with whales and everything else in this world.
But one day Jesus is going to bring an end to this order and the dead in Christ will rise and those who are left will be changed in the twinkling of an eye from perishable to imperishable and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. You think about it, Jesus' resurrection body was the type of body that, uh, that we're going to have. Okay, it was, a, it was a fully redeemed spiritual body and he was able to go directly from earth straight into heaven. Right now, we can't do that. But our resurrection bodies will be able to. And Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm making a new heavens and a new earth. And heaven and earth will not be separated as they are now. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit what is imperishable. And so we're going to put on the imperishable. And then we'll be able to go back and forth between heaven and earth in a physical environment, in a physical form. And redeemed humanity will take its place of nobility and dignity, ruling a restored creation without death, without decay, forever and ever. You'll be able to go out and feed your pet lion some fresh grass, and the kids can take their pet cobras to show and tell. Does this sound like a fairy tale to you? It does, doesn't it? Of course it does. But it's true. Nonetheless, you have the solemn promise of the Alpha and the Omega that it is so. And if you are in Christ, you will be there. You will see it. You will live it. You will experience it in your body forever. You will be a bright, ageless child of God with strength upon strength, and you will see it with your own eyes, the eyes of flesh. Behold, says Jesus, I am making all things new. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer.